I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. The Lost Boys. Michael and Sam have just moved to Santa Carla, California. They're about to discover its secret. Notice anything unusual about Santa Carla yet? No. It's a pretty cool place. If you're a Martian. Or a vampire. So where are you? The flying nun? I'm your brother, Sammy. Help me! Stay back! Stay back! What's happening to me, Star? Get yourself a good, sharp stick. Drive it right through his heart. You're a vampire, Michael. My own brother, a damn blood-sucking vampire. Oh, you wait till Mom finds out, buddy. When a vampire buys it, it's never a pretty sight. This was a commissioned show by Maya Santandrea, Andy Rodriguez, and Bradford Yerku. And running with us on trail bikes across a darkened beachfront headed through the mist for God knows where are Brendan Agnew of Synapse. How's it going? Uh, and Debbie Morse. Hello. And Karu Nagisa. Hey there. Of Sequentially Yours. The plot for this 1987 movie runs thus. The Emerson family travel from Phoenix, Arizona to Santa Carla, California, following the divorce of the mother, Lucy, played by Diane Wiest. Lucy has two teenage sons, Sam, aged 13, played by Corey Haim, and Michael, aged 44, played by the smouldering Jason Patrick. <laughs> they reach Lucy's father's house, an old hunting lodge maintained by this batty old coot who has welcomed his daughter home until she gets back on her feet, and beyond, one assumes, and who is nothing but supportive and gentle with her. On the boardwalk of this Coney Island-looking funfair, squeaky-voiced young Sammy finds himself in a nerdy pissing contest with the Frog Brothers, two paranoid weird boys who run the local comic shop, whilst their barely-seen parents get very, very high. And towering, manly man-sized Michael with his secret sex lips spies a mysterious young lady named Star who is looking after a sullen, mute little boy named Laddie. Unfortunately, or possibly fortunately for Michael, Star runs with a rough crowd of dangerous-looking teenage boys led by the charismatic, peroxide-mulleted David, played by Keith Sutherland. As it turns out, those runaways are more than they appear, and Santa Carla is the murder capital of the world, has itself a lot of missing kids, and a seriously growing vampire problem. Okay, so let's just go back over the cast there, because... <laughs> This has got Keith Sutherland, Diane Weiss, Jason Patrick, the Corys Feldman and Haim, Alex Winter of Bill and Ted, and Jamie Gertz in her prime, all at the same time. I, I, also, is, Ed, Edward Herman. Don't forget Edward of Herman. Of course, is, is Edmund Herman Max? Yes. Yes. I'm sorry to forget Edward Herman Max. Uh, yeah, he's <laughs> like everyone is on top form and seems to get what they're doing in this film. And I tell you, it's really odd having first seen this movie after I had already started watching Gilmore Girls back in the, I, I don't know, early aughts, mm -hmm. yeah. whenever that started airing. Because, yeah, yeah so like that's my, me and my sister watched that from like the premiere of the first season in 2000. And maybe a couple years later, I watched The Lost Boys and I'm like, oh, Grandpa, no. Oh, yeah. Same here. I, I picked up uh, Gilmore Girls in... Uh, season three, but I had seen Lost Boys much, much earlier. I've watched it countless times over the years, and I'm like, 
uh, I can't trust Richard Gilmore here. <laughs> he's a va- he's clearly a vampire. Uh, <laughs> Ray, imagine I, that none of us studied Gilmore Girls and explain what the hell is going on. So Gilmore Girls is a um, it, it's it's a teen slash young adult drama from the early aughts. Okay. Um, the two main characters are a mother and a daughter. The mother's parents, one of them is is played um, is is played by uh, Edward uh, Edward Herman, right? And right, he's right, a very nice. like a, a very sort of stuffy rich guy who's also warmly grandparently. Um, right. And so watching the, the film, you're like, you want to put stuffiness. all your trust in Max, and, and then yes. at the end, it turns out to be misplaced. Well, that makes it better. Yeah, it does. Oh. Uh, he also played uh, Herman Munster in one of the Munsters TV movies. So, just another thing that he did that was mildly connected to this. Yeah. Uh, but-, but I think that Max is like one of the one of the linchpins that really makes this work because he's mm. just boring enough that you kind of allow yourself to forget that he really should be a monster because the only adults in this movie are monsters or bystanders or the main characters. Yeah. It helps that the Frog Brothers are also so over the top that even though they are right, you dismiss them because they sound like idiots in most the, in almost every case. I want to exempt Lucy and her father from that monsters or bystanders thing. Lucy's just bewildered and doesn't really know what's going on. So she's not really standing by and letting it happen. And her dad turns out to be the one who saves the day. So, like, uh, they they at least get out of jail free, surely. Yeah, okay. Okay. Now, here's another thing while watching it. How the f- living undead fuck are there, like, three teenage vampire films slash vampire film series? I, we, we went back through it, and there's Fright Night, which is kind of a teen vampire film. We've already covered that one. Great show. We did a double bill of that one and the Anton Yelchin remake, which is better. And uh, there's Vamp, which they're not even teenagers. They're college boys. And it's... Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. Uh, then, there's the, like then there's Vampire Diaries. Is that a TV show? It is. A Based TV on show, a book yes. series. Yeah. Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Again, TV show way more significant than the... Uh, uh, the uh, Christy Swanson film. And then there's Twilight, and they're not really vampires. They're, um, oh, we worked this out when we uh, were rewatching uh, Breaking Dawn Part 2 with the uh, the demon baby uh, with uh, We Hate Movies commentary. They're glampires. They're <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's not us saying, well, you, know, you must be this vampy to enter. It, they are a variation on vampires that are more towards glamorous elves than, like, the whole blood-drinking thing. That's That doesn't yeah. really come into it that much. But, like, there's this whole untapped market of what-if teen vampires that just hasn't been explored. Especially since the the transformation into, into a blood sucking monster as metaphor for going through puberty is mm-hmm. is such a layup. Um, like they they do elements of that with Buffy, of course, and then they they touch on some of the you know, gosh, we really don't understand the youths, and we we hope that our the youth doesn't go running around with the wrong types of the youths mm. um, as metaphor for <laughs> joining a literal blood sucking monster cult. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, like with with Fright Night, it's I, I love how this and Fright Night work as a double bill for how we recontextualize fears based on our modern interpretations of things. Like yeah. 
instead of Dracula as a scary foreigner coming to bring his scary foreignness to our women, you have, we can't trust people in suburbia even if they're our neighbors, and my son is turning into someone that I don't recognize because of the people he's hanging out with. Yeah. Yeah. And in many ways, um, at least with the original one, the main characters are very much opposites in the sense that Michael essentially lets his dick lead him into the undead, and (laughs) Charlie apparently doesn't even know where his dick is leading him. He has no clue. Mm. Uh, But there's also a very heavy um, LGBTQ leanings in this film. It's like, yeah, everything about these outcasts is like, well, you don't want to hang around with those kids. And then the curious Michael gets drawn in. And it just so happens that a lot of that group is actually very toxic. But you could play it that there are a whole... like The Lost Boys itself would work as an ongoing TV series with young-ish teens slowly Uh kind of like... Um, maybe like the, the, don't do the whole they don't age thing because that way um, you can actually make it run for quite a while and make that a whole long drama series about you know like what it's like to be outcast and 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 the, the various permutations of that. I was just gonna say you did mention Vampire Diaries, and yeah. I watched the first I want to say three or four seasons of that. Mm-hmm. And there's actually some really it's some of that in there. The, right, cool. The the main characters, uh, Elena and Stefan, mm-hmm. are eh, whatever. They're they're fine. They're basic vampire, typical teen vampire protagonist, Twilight ripoffs. But one of their two of her friends, well, one of her friends and her what eventually becomes her boyfriend, um, are are worth watching the series for because the the female friend is like she only grows and gets more interesting as the show goes on. Right. And if you watch for her and her subplot, that's fascinating. There's a lot of good stuff there. Okay. You know? There's also a lot of potential to if you're doing this in a long running form to really make some actual dramatic meat out of the um, David's like exploration of the group as a metaphor for bisexual awakening, because mm-hmm. that, I mean, there's, yeah. there's definitely something interesting there. And Joel Schumacher is, he's not subtle and he's also <laughs> definitely yeah. Joel Schumacher. Yeah. Um, but I think he really channels himself the right way here. And I don't know if you can like look at it as a, as a positive interpretation of that sort of thing, but it's, it's definitely an, a, a fascinating reading for that. And you know, as, for for all that David is like a thirty five year old man who's still in high school, it, he, he carries that off pretty well. Yeah, I think there's yeah. definitely some questionable imagery and and setups uh, with that in mind. The um, Michael being unable to stop himself from going after his own brother in the bath. Um, has a big old question mark over it, um, you know, if you want to go for the homophobic stereotype. But um, but I think, yeah, the tying it in with the whole vampirism as puberty element, which I think is kind of an extension of the Victorian take on the vampire, i.e. sex scary, we must be terrified of it and push it away at all costs. Um, it does sort of pull in these elements of you hit this age and all of a sudden you're getting all these impulses and desires that you can't explain and interpret, let alone anyone else. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
it's also hard to talk about the sort of um, the um, queer subtext of this without discussing Sam, who uh, is so astonishingly coded gay. Like they, they don't even hide it. Like he, he's got a poster of a shirtless guy on there is his that. wall. It, that shirtless with, guy no, is um, Rob Lowe. Oh well, there we go. Yeah, who had yeah, just been in uh, Joel Schumacher's uh, the film you like that's crap. Oh, St. Elmo's Fire. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> Uh-huh. Yeah, but I mean you got you've uh, you've got so yeah, shirtless Rob Lowe who uh in St. Elmo's Fire played a rock saxophonist mm-hmm. who um the rock sa- the shirtless rock sa- rock saxophonist in this movie <laughs> also has Sam staring at him while Michael's being distracted by Star. He does. Um there's yeah. the Born to Shop t shirt, which is um Although, although, like, you put that shirtless saxophonist on a stage with a bunch of teenagers, like, cheering him, it would be rather impossible not to stare, regardless of sexuality. (laughs) He's quite stare-worthy. Yes, he looks like Shawn Michaels. Does anybody else get that? Yes! Yes, he does! I didn't didn't notice that before, but yes, now that you mention it. (laughs) And for all that that guy's kind of been turned into a meme, um, again, like... This is Schumacher really leaning into the uh, vampire film as though it were written by a rock opera mm. because he's he's got like the diegetic saxophone music that specifically plays whenever you get those long lingering shots of like Michael and Star so that they get their own like wailing sax tunes and then like, you know, cause he's not playing the sax all the time. So it's not like it's just there to punctuate those. Oh, she's looking at him. Oh, he's looking at her saxophone. <laughs> like it's it's so extra, yeah. but like it yeah. it works. And, uh, Lou Graham wrote and performed that one, that saxophone stuff. That's Lou Graham.
Weirdly, this film had an effect on me when I saw the poster hanging on the wall of my school corridor in 1988 when I was eight years old. Now, I assumed, because of the name, The Lost Boys, that it was a vampiric take on Peter Pan with much younger kids than ended up in the film, maybe even kids my own age. I had just seen Salem's Lot on TV, and something about the idea of vampire kids scared the shit out of me and intrigued uh-huh. me. But it was the word lost that I got hung up on the most. See, when we're young, if we're lucky, we can depend on our parents and, by extension, the system to support us. What this single word suggested was that these kids had no parents, no support, and they lived or at least existed outside the system in the dark and the cold and the wet and the unknown, outside the places of the living and in the shadows. Effectively, I was grappling with the existential fear of being homeless at an age so young. When you're a kid, your friendships can become so intense that you rely on your companions as much as, if not more than, your parents. So the notion of being without adult protection and guidance thus puts far more pressure on that group dynamic. So that's where the whole boys thing came in. I was like, okay, so they're lost together. And nothing in the film, when I finally saw it a few years later, could match the version in my head or that unsettling, unnameable fear. But what I saw did not absolutely contradict what I'd envisioned. A version of The Lost Boys exists inside my head now, still, where they were much younger, it was less cheesy and fun and more intense somehow, and serious along the lines of Let the Right One In. The scariest implications of Peter Pan and Neverland, and the double-edged fang of being stuck at a young age forever, it's just kind of in there and I, I feel like I need to write some kind of book to get that one out mm. it would be again like it would be dodgy and difficult to do that with kids that young because there is obviously the like all of the other elements to this which people would get very uncomfortable with it being performed by kids it's also a hell of a lot to put on young kids to perform but um it feels like there's something there, at least for young people, to latch onto in that sense of isolation. I think that's around about, well, not long after that, I started getting into X-Men. Mm. So, Well, I think oh, the, there you go. the difficulty with having a young element in vampire stories is that the, the vampire as a myth is inextricably linked with sex in our heads because their method of monstering is so intimate. Yeah. And it's yeah. completely different to Twilight. I don't want to spend the time bashing Twilight, but ultimately, uh, in terms of the most popular recent teen vampires thing, that is about a human girl meeting a very rich, uh, affluent, comfortable, loving family and deciding she wants to spend the rest of eternity with them. It's really nothing to do with being an outcast. Mm. The, the emphasis with that is more on the immortality element than yeah. it is on the, uh, oh, and you're going to have to drink blood to survive. Yeah, the griminess yeah. is definitely not in that world. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, the irony here is that, quite frankly, young Alex hit on what this movie almost was. Yeah, which was going like, to be a, a kids' version of this, but G-rated. I think, like, yeah, so like, yeah, it was supposed to be more like Goonies, yeah, um, that way. But still, it was you know, it was a lot more Peter Pan focused. David was initially named Peter. Lucy was initially named Wendy. Ah, uh, uh, little on the nose. So much, but yes, it is yeah. a little on the nose. <laughs> yeah, uh, Joel Schumacher when he was brought in basically decided that. To, to tone it down a little bit, which is strange for Joel Schumacher to say. <laughs> we got to tone but this down also, a little bit. Yeah. Really? Also, uh, bring bring the ages up and make it sexier, mm. uh, which is definitely something Joel Schumacher would say. 
say. Mm-hmm. Um, the one kind of thing, and, and I, I don't want to like seem like I'm bashing Sam because I'm not here, but it seems like he's the one person who still has remnants of that in there because yeah. his character would have been six. And there's a lot of times when I'm like, dude, you're 13 years old. Why do, why do you need a babysitter? Why are you taking a bath before bed if you're between the ages of, I don't know, 10 and 30? Why, why are you doing that? <laughs> Especially with, like, like the whole... He practically makes himself like a, a soap bubble beard. Like it's he's one <laughs> step removed away from that. He is a little infantilized, yeah. Yeah, except, yeah. So it, it seems like that's just one of those relics from mm. earlier drafts when he would have been a six-year-old, and they just never bothered to age him up in some places. I assume Laddie is kind very, of uh, held over from yeah. that too. Yeah, yeah, a little bit. I can see that. So so let's go through the uh, the film itself. Uh Lucy uh, played again as I said by Diane Weist. We're going to cover Parenthood next year, which is my favorite family drama and uh, Diane Weist is fucking amazing in that. So I'll I'll save the absolute super gushing about her acting abilities for that one. Here she what she brings is this sense of you know being natural and caring and like she's been through some shit but she's just like kind of got past it. She never really gets a big dramatic scene. But like what she represents is this person who's trying to pull their life back together. And I only noticed today uh, that at the very beginning, when they're at the, when they're just coming into Santa Carla, and you're seeing like loads of very quick montage shots of the the streets, there's some kids dumpster diving, and they're parked at a uh, garage, and she hands Sam some money, and in this incredibly fleeting like blink and you'll miss it even if you watch the film 10 times throughout your life she says go tell those kids to eat something and she's literally giving uh, these these wayward kids some money and it's just a really lovely little establishment of that she actually cares about these you know lost Mm. kids which that thus obviously plays into what max sees in her yeah there's quite a few little interactions with um with various characters talking to lucy where her her personality and her character and the wendiness of her Mm. is um, is put across and it's in things like when her dad says about you're the only woman I ever knew who didn't improve her situation through divorce and yeah. she basically says she didn't want to drag the kids through a long court battle mm. um, and that's why they're broken having to live with her dad and then there's her finding the little lost kid outside the video store and bringing him in to try and find his mum mm. and the this sort of she's she's kind and supportive and loving and seems to have kind of those that sense of an open door and open arms and she'll look after anybody which is of course what draws max to want her to come and be a part of the clan Mm. uh, so that she can provide his boys with a mum and they sell that element of her so swiftly and in in shorthand because she doesn't have an awful lot of screen time Mm. I had a very, you know, general sense of her being, you know, loving and mothering and, you know, very much she feels real. She feels like a real mom. And it, you know, and it, but it speaks to the subtlety of Diane Weiss' performance is the fact that each thing you're bringing up, I'm like, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, that that tracks and makes sense because she's, you know, she's very caring and loving, but she's a hard ass when she needs to be and you know she's she's gonna fight for her boys even if 
even if they themselves are doing things that are, you know, ill-advised and hanging out with people who are not really safe. And she's so likable that there was a deleted scene where uh, David and his uh, biker vampires start driving. Like, she's outside the video store and they drive round and round and round her, hounding her and making her very nervous. And at that point, you lose all... Uh, sense of any kind of sympathy for David and his vampire boys. <laughs> like mm-hmm. if, 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 mm-hmm. Any that you might create later on, you're like, yeah, but you were so horrible to Lucy at that point. Uh, but, but the subtext does suggest the amount of children on missing posters throughout this that well, see, when I was a kid, I was like, oh, yeah, and they all get turned into vampires, these kids that we don't see, and it's like, no, those are the food. These vampire teens are preying on children it's pretty fucked up if you think about it because the the amount of time the film spends on those missing posters especially in those opening shots where Mm. you have like santa clara being portrayed as this both like nightlife party town because you've got these rocking concerts on the beach and people Mm. in weird clothes like they're they're so cool they're getting kicked off the boardwalk and like starting fights over girls like you know young hot-headed teens do but you've also got like children dumpster diving and like these all these missing posters of missing kids and then the the number of like kind of urchins out on the street also suggests that their parents are getting picked off and we also see this happen with a lot of adults it's 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 a weird like way to bury a very grim note inside a lot of very it's still r-rated but this kind of like one of those ideal first r-rated vampire movies because it's still very approachable and bubbly Mm -hmm. and poppy Mm -hmm. while at the Mm -hmm. same time having this really kind of wretched undercurrent if you again like it you know blinking you'll miss it but it's definitely there yeah it kind of echoes the the dynamic of it in Derry as well mm. very simple. i was thinking the same thing mm. i was thinking the same thing andy muschetti drew a lot from this yeah, for but it. The, there's the the high rate of murders there's the constant missing children posters and also... The, the adult bystanders you mentioned earlier. Yeah, exactly. Um, but also the big disasters, the hotel, the resort hotel that is the, the lost boy's lair that's buried underground. David makes reference to it having basically been swallowed by the 1906 San Francisco earthquake, which uh, I believe, I think the numbers are something like 3,000 people died in that. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's to Real date um, one of the greatest natural disasters in terms of life lost. They lost most of San Francisco Yeah, 80% of San Francisco was destroyed either in the quake itself or the fires that came after it. So it's it, this, this huge thing that seems to have set off this very dangerous, threatening and yet superficially successful town. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Debbie, you were going to say something a little bit earlier. Yeah, I was. I was just going to comment. It's something I'm just thinking about in our discussion. That the last, you know, the line at the end that Grandpa says, you know, the problem with Santa. Only they could never stomach about Santa Carla. All the damn vampires. All the damn vampires. Which that got me thinking. I was like, hang on a minute. If he's <laughs> saying that, how many like? They must not be, Max must not be the only vampire around there. There must be, like, a bunch of other nests somewhere. Mm-hmm. That's yeah, a I mean, very yeah. good point. That. Yeah, could David, could David and his crew of three other people and a child and Star 
really be the murder capital of the world? Probably not. Huh. Another uh, comparison to It that I quite... And I mentioned this in the It um, podcast, how they're under the Losers Underground lair, their clubhouse, has a Lost Boys poster mm. that's... Yeah, that um, visually mimics very closely the Jim Morrison poster, which is in David's underground lair. Of course. <laughs> yeah. Nice. And uh, th- that Jim Morrison poster is obviously because uh, Joel Schumacher was like, well, you look like Jim Morrison, and I'm going to make the most of that this whole way through the movie. <laughs> oh, yeah. He Another really- reason why I loved this movie was when it came out, I was in the height of my Doors the Greatest Band Ever to Live phase. <laughs> Also, they you know have the Echo and the Bunny Men cover of People Are Strange in mm, this right at the beginning, which is actually a really good cover. I, I I love everything about this soundtrack, but that's one of the highlights for me. Speaking of the soundtrack, Sharon, this was she's making a face like in a, a good face. I <laughs> oh, okay. adore this soundtrack. <laughs> I had this soundtrack in college and listened to it over and over and over again. <laughs> same, same. How shall not? It's just. It was on a loop from the sounds of it. Yes. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Yes. And mm-hmm. to the point where you knew exactly when to turn it over to get to the best bit on the other That's side. That's right, yeah. 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 <laughs> nice. Because I had it on tape. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that, um, I was looking, I couldn't remember who did the original, this this version of Cry Little Sister, mm. um, was which is Troy McMahon. Yeah. Oh, Troy McMahon, okay. Yeah, Gerard McMahon did uh, the original, uh, did this one. Right. So I tried to look it up, and there are so many covers of Cry Little Sister. Mm. Um, the most recent one being from Marilyn Manson that, if it ever gets made, is supposed to be on the New Mutant soundtrack. Ah, oh, hmm. nice. It's not a terrible, it's a, it's a pretty good cover. I mean, no, I've heard it, yeah. There's, yeah. He, he does not get enough credit that he can, he's a really good musician and he mm. can, yeah. he can do some really amazing things. Yeah, yeah. but uh, one of the things that, um... I particularly like about this song was uh, Gerard McMahon had no idea what the movie was about when he wrote it. Nice. Basically, Schulmacher just kind of gave him some of the major themes of the film, and he wrote it. He wrote this song basically about a brother trying to connect with his sister, and they're somewhat estranged. And uh, even Schumacher was like, "This hits. This is what the movie's about, even if it doesn't mention vampires at all. This is it." And it makes me think of other, you know, kind of great movie themes that really have nothing to do with the movie uh, Burned uh, by the Cure from the Crow jumps to mind immediately mm-hmm. the opposite side of this would be Titan AE where they do um, It's My Turn to Fly and it is so astonishingly on the nose that I have trouble <laughs> I like the song, I, I work out to that song sometimes, <laughs> but when you pair it with the visuals then it just doesn't seem to it's too on the nose it's and Randy Newman, basically. You know, it's, it's yeah, exactly. Yeah. about what's going on. Yeah, but with Cry Little Sister, it's, you know, it gives us the feel of the movie without necessarily having to tell us the plot of the movie. Well, the other thing that Cry Little Sister and just the rest of the soundtrack does is, again, it's it's kind of Schumacher just being extremely extra and, and very him. Um, like everything is turned up to 11 from the visuals to the soundtrack and, and all that. And it would be really easy to sort of like mock the movie for it because it's not quite self-aware, but it really is sort of bringing up the experience of 
everything is so elevated and heightened when you're a teenager, whether you're 13 or whether you're, mm. you know, 35 going on 18. Um, it's <laughs> just so much of your life is about like these giant highs and these crushing lows and everything is the best thing that's ever happened or the worst thing that's ever happened. Yeah. And there's, there's no like lulls or, you know, everything is these high contrasts and they really do kind of capture that. And, and the music is such a big part of it. Cause it's just like, Everything is so big. Everything that Michael is experiencing is insane. Everything that Sam is going through is utterly bananas. And it, it, it works because sometimes being a teenager is just fucking like that. Yeah. yeah. And I think to go along with that, like Schumacher is th- this is his material. Like this material is perfect for him. This and we watched, I don't know, a couple months ago, we watched Flatliners, the one from the 80s. <clears throat> Which was 90s. also the nineties. Yeah. Which was also directed by him, which that's also an example of kind of perfect material for him. Like he does gothic like nobody but nobody's business. He he puts Tim Burton to shame when he tries to do gothic. It would have been interesting to see him try to do Tim Burton's gothic as opposed to the weird neon revamp after Tim Burton stepped away following returns. Yeah. And that's, yeah. that's a weird that's a weird tangent, but like I, I kind of feel like he could have been been in a very similar lane in a very cool way, and if if they hadn't decided to go in a very different direction with Forever, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and there's pieces of that in this, especially in the Lost Boys like lair, it's it's very you know it, it's very warmly lit, but it's also still like large and towering, and you don't have like the 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 sort of same color palette that you do in like Batman or the Crow, but it still feels appropriate in, in the way that he uses the space and photographs it. And you've got like a lot of heavy use of like the, the moving camera making you feel like you're flying through this area. And it's, it's like I said, he's, he's not subtle, but he's very effective in this very specific line. Yeah. And I was saying it's probably, it was probably a lot cheaper to rent a helicopter than to try to get Kiefer Sutherland in a wire rig. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Just scope in your civilian wardrobe. Pretty cool, huh? For a fashion victim. Listen, buddy, if you're looking for the diet frozen yogurt bar, it went out of business last summer. Actually, I'm looking for a Batman number 14. That's a very serious book, man. Only five in existence. Four, actually. I'm always looking out for the other three. Look, you can't put the Superman number 77s with the 200s. They haven't even discovered red kryptonite yet. And you, uh, you can't put the number 98 with the 300s. Laurie Lamaris hasn't even been introduced. Where the hell are you from? Krypton? Phoenix, actually. But lucky me, we moved here. It has a, a realism about it. I mean, it's, it's, it's obviously heightened and operatic, but it has a realism about it that, the, uh, that Batman Forever and Batman and Robin obviously don't, don't ever uh, indulge in. It's... The cave that you mentioned does have this kind of antiqued, like, if a bunch of teenagers came down there and were like, right, we're going to make this our place, it would probably have ended up looking like that in the 80s, like, with, it, with what they could get their hands on. They've got a... The other thing that I found really intriguing about the aesthetic in the cave is that it's impossible to put a finger on how old they are. how long they've all been doing this because the clothes... I mean, to be fair, most of them look like Sergeant Pepper. 
Yeah. Um, <laughs> they've got the whole sort of band, band leader, leader big thing band going thing on. Exactly. <laughs> they but, killed a whole brass band to get to all of that stuff. Yeah. Well, actually, <laughs> multiple brass bands because none of them match. Yeah. Um, but the even Laddie, like they they managed to get a little drummer boy somewhere so they could get a jacket well, for Laddie. That made me think when I was a kid: is Laddie like from the Civil War or something? Yeah. And the, obviously, he's he's got to be fairly recent. Yeah, he's on a poster. Star are, are in the same situation. In yeah, that they they've drunk the blood but not made their first kill yet. Yeah. but the the prop that really made me sit up and go, "Ooh, hang on a minute!" And it's really a tiny little throwaway thing. But that bottle that has David's blood in it is. It looks ancient. Yeah. Uh-huh. So, I mean, unless they just keep it around and, and put new blood in it every time they've got a new gang leader. And then and cover they... it in dust again? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> that rather suggests that David has been turning people for quite some time. Yeah, and they are wow. absolutely festooned with the kind of trappings that '80s parents would have uh, started to have heart palpitations in seeing uh, their kids start to hang around with other kids dressed like this. They've, like, like I said, there's this very gothic punk thing going on with with all yeah. of them. The costumes were by uh, a lady named Susan Becker, and she uh, decked them out in it. What it was inconsistent across the whole, the, all of them that they have different types of, of things there's leather and uh, uh sutherland's wearing all black but not specifically leather and uh there's they're all riding these uh bikes and they've got wild hair and uh earrings and very specifically michael puts an earring on after he's been hanging around with them so it's like creeping into his uh mode of dress mm-hmm. and uh also adds to the queer subtext yeah. 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 yeah kind of connecting it back to the soundtrack one thing I noticed about the soundtrack is there are a lot of covers on here mm. that take things from, you know, the 60s and 70s and then update them into what would have been modern times for things. So, of course, we discussed, we discussed Echo and the Bunny Men's People Are Strange. Mm. There's uh, Roger Daltrey from The Who doing an update of Don't Let the Sun Go Down on Me during the credits. Mm-hmm. Um, there was, uh, what was the other one? Walk This Way, the Run DMC version. Mm-hmm. So there's still that, there's, again, that sense of something old in the trappings of something new. Being updated. So it's it, very pertinently, yeah, they're going out of yeah. their way to bring up to date vampires for the 80s. Which, again, yeah. kind of gives a little emphasis on that if you're immortal, it doesn't matter what era you draw your influences from. And that's mm. something that Anne Rice played with a lot, She um, in the books particularly. Uh, there's a lot in there about the vampires having these weird... Um, multi-era aesthetics and just picking up things because they think they look good and not really caring about whether or not they go um, uh, what's the word Uh, whether they are uh, anachronistic with each other Mm. yeah fashions are so for a vampire I would imagine that fashions are so quickly changing that it would be more annoying than anything trying to keep up with all of them. Absolutely. And frankly, just keep it on the other side of your wardrobe until it comes back in again. Yeah, Yeah. every 30 years. Mm -hmm. And while they're gothic punk, they're not necessarily all just goths. They don't just have the, you know, completely black and like what you would imagine just uh, goths to be like, which is why I put on Twitter the uh, uh, Lost Boys or Guns N' Roses Mm. uh, four four pictures that all look pretty much the same. But (laughs) admirably, not a lacy cuff between them. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) True. 
I think point. that's a drawback, frankly. Then it has been more or less <laughs> yeah. enough. I think yeah, they missed a trick there, didn't they? But uh, uh, Brenda mentioned the. I think uh, it was you, Brenda, mentioned the camera earlier. The uh, mm-hmm. It's very active throughout the movie. Every time the vampires do something, there's this kind of uh, like a, a, a quality to the sound that goes kind of and like wind blowing and sort of almost like bats chirping and the camera starts getting really jiggly and and not so much like shaky cam but it moves and all of the vampires are affected by wind and air starts blowing through them and 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 like it makes their clothes which are all sort of hanging everywhere sort of boogie and their you know wild hair flies like that and effectively what he's doing is uh, conveying magic as they uh, uh, you know fly from one place to the other one of the best moments is um they, uh, Sammy looks out of uh, his bedroom window and stars down the uh, the bottom, and and uh, he says she can't come in. And then it cuts to Michael staring at Star now standing inside the window, and there's no join. There's no bit where she jumps, flies up, and gets through the window, and it makes her seem more strange and, and ethereal and magical for that it's just she's standing there and wind's blowing and she's just really kind of intense with it uh, as opposed to uh, stunts which i think works in favor uh, of this uh, film rather than trying to get these actors flung about on rigs they did that with storm in the x-men films and it looks terrible yeah yeah and the, the, that, and the x-men films had had the benefits of over a decade over this yeah and if you had uh, them floating around without the wind, just sort of hanging down, it would have been like, okay, so they're on wires. So when, when uh, Michael finds himself flying because he's ingested blood from that vampire bottle they got, gave him, uh, it, it wouldn't have felt quite like he's being affected by forces so much. And if the camera was totally static, he would just look like he was dangling and he wouldn't even know it. Because of the, uh, the, the, uh, the lively camera work and the wind... The effect is made. There's a lot of clever editing as well, especially towards the end of the film, to to play with the idea of specifically um, David flying around that big main living room of the house, mm-hmm. playing the now you see me, now you don't game with, with Michael, where they don't actually have to get him on the rig and fly him across the room but they'll have these very lightning fast shots. And this is like, this is years before Michael Bay and Tony Scott were, were pushing the, the super fast editing in the, in the mid nineties. Like this is very, very much a a precursor to that sort of thing. Um, And there's like, looking back on it from a modern lens, the way they do Michael's transformation, it's filmed sort of like a horror inverted version of almost like a superhero origin of him, you know, Oh no, this thing happened to me. Oh no, now I have these these abilities and I and I wake up and I'm not sure what just happened and I'm experimenting with these new things that are happening and then like it's it, when when he's fighting with Kiefer Sutherland at the end it's it's like a full on superpowered fight. They're yeah. they're throwing each other around the room and flying and have super strength and it's it's ludicrous. Um but it it sort of feels especially once you've seen like Sam Raimi put a touch of his horror in into Spider-Man it it mm. feels it feels like a stepping stone from like Superman to Batman to our modern interpretation of genre cinema. Yeah. Oh, I was just going to say, you brought up the fight at the end. It just occurred to me that there are very definite echoes of that fight in a certain fight scene in Buffy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If, if 
if you know which one I'm talking about, fight that turns into other things, shall we say? Fuck fighting, where the whole house falls down? (laughs) Yes, that! That's definitely the one, yes. Yes. Okay, I think I know which one that was then. <laughs> um, and uh, the uh, another thing Schumacher mentioned in the uh, commentary was that uh, when Michael first drinks from the bottle, there's a lot of juxtaposed images. Uh, not juxtaposed, blended images. It's not quite a montage. Like there's something's happening on the left of the screen and then some more stuff is faded in on the right of the screen and then you've got Jim Morrison in the background and it's spinning around and around. And it's a drunken orgy is yeah, what it is. Yeah, pretty much. Um <laughs> Uh, and uh, Keith Sutherland's on a little merry-go-round being spun round and round as Michael, come join our uh, our vampire sect and read into that whatever you wish. Um, But he he mentioned that uh, uh, the kids at the time were suddenly discovering MTV, so all of this, like, you know, he would describe it as avant-garde imagery. It's very Duran Duran. Yeah, was something that was their language at that point, and and that it actually probably wouldn't have been in films much earlier, but it just sort of fitted in with... There was definitely, obviously, a lot of intercutting and a lot of, uh, you know, fast edits in the 70s, but this kind of soft blending does actually work well with the music video sensibility. Mm, and especially given that they've got probably the longest version of Cry Little Sister mm. playing <laughs> over this. So yeah. you're kind of, you're intercutting the that uh, mournful tone of the music with the really weird as fuck lyrics going on mm. and the many layers of imagery that you've got going on in front of you and you build this narrative about what's happening to Michael and how he's feeling mm. and it really communicates that the the sensory nature of it in a way that um, is not that common in film much earlier than this. I mean, I think the 80s was really when this was was starting to become more of a thing. I I certainly know that when we've been watching films from the 70s of late, that's what they lack for me, is that that, um, what you get is the visual. Yeah. And maybe the audio plays into it as well. But it doesn't quite communicate that take over every sense you've got element. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, the uh, uh, going through a wormhole in 2001 did in 1968. Yeah, yeah. But, well, no, because even when we talked about that, I said the the guts of it is visual. It it still doesn't necessarily um, ensnare all of you. So you couldn't hear a thousand ghosts screaming at you. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, I I agree. But the point is that I was trying to make is that's the exception, not the rule. Mm. It really took took you out of it because no other filmmakers were really doing that sort of stuff at the time. I mean, there, there was a lot of experimental psychedelia, especially in the seventies, when like people were making much lower budget films without studio backing. Mm. Um, but uh, yeah, it took to the eighties for studios to stop getting quite so frightened of doing unusual things. Mm. Yeah. They realised there was uh, money in it. Yeah, and then Michael yeah. Bay came <laughs> along and started painting with everybody's adrenaline. Mm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, you can take these things too far, Michael. Yeah. <laughs> so, Jason. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, uh, just just to add to tagging on to what Sharon was saying about it, you know, adding to the, I suppose, sensual side, as in of the senses, um, is the fact that number one, this um, this cave still feels homey. It feels like teenagers threw this stuff together. Mm. But I buy that, you know, they were kind of trying to make a home for themselves. Yeah. 
Because it's, there's, you know, you've got little partitioned off areas, so it's kind of, people have their own bedrooms. Hanging curtains everywhere, a lot of doilies. Yeah. Mm. Still yeah. Yeah. got a lot of flowery fabrics. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and it, it feels like they, you know, some part of them, there's still a little bit of humanity there that they still want, you know, they still want a little bit of privacy. They still want a little bit, they're still teens, just a little bit. Although the uh, uh, the actual vampires themselves then end up hanging like bats from the ceiling. Yeah. Uh, right. So I think that sleeping area is, the one we see is stars. Uh, the the mm-hmm. suggestion would be that by the end of the, uh, the film, had things gone differently, she would have ended up hanging up there as well. And that, mm-hmm. yeah, possibly that their humanity would start to ebb away as they became more animalistic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, even even Laddie or Boy, well, let's just call him, uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. would have been there. Yeah. Well, it, although it, they they do keep they do keep feeling like they're they're trying to like play act uh, because what Max is trying to to sell, you know, like. Hey, yeah, we'll be we'll be like a family, you know. Your boys, my boys, boys need a mother, you know. It's we're going to be just one big monster murder family. It's it's like they're yeah. they're not quite sure if they they're just going through the motions mm. or if this actually is some kind of weird vestige of of humanity because they do feel like they the characters do feel lost when one of their own is killed. There's definitely that connection, mm. but it's still. You know, like you said, between the fact of them having this this area, but also not really using it in a way that's familiar to us, it's very off-putting. Max, for folks who haven't seen it yet, is the uh, guy who runs the local video store that Lucy goes to uh, uh, see if she can get a job there. And in 1987, getting a job at a video store was primo. It was like, <laughs> well, <laughs> selling videotapes. This is this is a brand new industry that's going to be renting out renting out videotapes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. And, Ask uh, your parents. It was a boom time for for that yeah. uh, technology. I have a question. It was, a problem. it was apparently also okay in 1987 to date your employees. So. There was that, yeah. Mm, there is yeah. that. Although if Santa Clara is like this sort of little beachfront town, I'm guessing that nobody probably cares. Is it Santa Clara yeah. or Santa Carla? Santa Clara, I thought. Oh, okay. So it's I, like Santa I, Clarita. I think it's actually Santa Carla, yeah. which drives me nuts because yeah. every time I think it it should be Santa Clara I'm I th- like I think it's that the 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 city founders of Santa Clara, uh, Clara were like, could you call it something slightly different, please? We don't want to get known for being the murder capital of the world and all the damn vampires. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, they're missing a trick there because just deck it out in gothic stuff and have everybody come for the vampires. Yeah. Um, there you but go. If, yeah. We, if we're looking at the Peter Pan parallels, does that make Max Captain Hook? I was thinking Captain Hook slash Mister Darling. Hmm. That um, thing that they do in the play where they have Captain Hook and Mr. Darling be the same actor because functionally he is calling them to do the same thing, which is join this family, be part of these rules that you're not ready for, that you may not want, you know, you want to push these boundaries and I'm telling you, you need to step back away from them. Yeah. Done to best effect in uh, the uh, 2003, 2004 Peter Pan. Uh, Jason Isaacs. Jason Isaacs, yeah. So good. Uh Which we did a show on many, many years ago, folks. You should uh, check that one out. Uh, Because that particular production of Peter Pan never got any particular love. Everyone was all about Hook. Uh, Yeah. Which is, you know, fine if you you love Hook. Um, We've we've got... 
We're going to uh, have another look at that for when we do our Spielberg season because we kind of covered it then, and I think we were maybe a bit too dismissive considering how many people love this thing. But yeah, uh, yeah. folks at home, let us know if you want us to go back to Hook. Anyway, I, I love two thirds of it. <laughs> the, I, I love all the bits that aren't those food fights. Like if yeah, you, you want to get drive me nuts, have a food fight, a messy, wasteful food fight. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, feeding time. Come and get it, boys. All right. Yeah, hey. Chinese. Good choice. Yes, first. You don't like rice? Tell me, Michael. How could a billion Chinese people be wrong? <laughs> Come on. How are those maggots? Maggots, Michael. You're eating maggots. How do they taste? <laughs> Even alone. <laughs> Pretty sad. Sorry about that. No hard feelings, huh? Oh. Why don't you try some noodles? <laughs> they're worms. I mean, they're worms. <laughs> Tony. They're only noodles, Michael. That's enough. Michael uh, and and Star sort of uh, conduct a relationship. She's very much um, kind of tight lipped about the whole thing. Like she she communicates with him very non verbally. Like she is going around the whole film being very mysterious and having a great secret. And when it what it comes out is that she's. Uh, half vampire, like she's drunk uh, the uh, the requisite amount of blood to give her all a bunch of vampire powers, but she hasn't yet killed somebody and drunk their blood. And, and Michael was supposed to be that person, uh, but she fell in love with him instead. And uh, it's they've, you've got a really great, like intense, romantic, almost a Romeo and Juliet uh, relationship between those two because like it's like two houses, both alike in dignity, battling against one another. <laughs> yeah. As well. mm-hmm. But on the other side of things, you've got Corey Hain now, very sadly not with us, as um, uh-huh. uh, young Sammy, trying to work out what the hell's wrong with his brother. And you got Corey Feldman, who was uh, three years after Friday the 13th Part 4, where he played little Tommy Jarvis, two years after Goonies, where he played Mouth, and one year after Stand By Me, where he played Teddy? Yes. yes. Yeah. So, like, I think those... Four films together. Maybe if you also want to add Donatello in the uh, Ninja Turtles movie, um, that's the essence of Corey Feldman's career. I suppose like, yes. you could also like put in the he's in the Fox and the Hound as well mm. as the 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 young. Um, I think he plays the dog, doesn't he? Answers I on a postcard. Know. Yeah, but yeah. yeah similarly, like uh, Feldman and Haim, uh, it was not great for them after 1990, and uh, um, Haim sadly died of uh, various complications in 2010. <clears throat> but I, I always found Sammy um, equal parts annoying and appealing uh, in that he has enough energy to keep that side of the movie going forwards. If he was too annoying, you'd be like, shut up, kid, I hope a vampire kills you and eats you. I think the, the <laughs> core of what makes Sam an appealing character is that once he's worked out that, that Michael's not going to kill him, mm. or at least is going to resist the urge to kill him as much as is humanly possible, mm. he's all in for protecting him and, and finding a way to yeah. help him and, and 
solve all of the vampire issues. There's a nice brotherly uh, um, energy mm-hmm. between the two of them. Mm. Yeah, they they sell. I, I love the chemistry those two have because they feel like very real brothers. But you know, brothers that seem to, for given the age difference, mm. they seem to get along really well. Yeah, mm. yeah. Well, I mean, they're just going through a divorce. I think that's part of it. Is that Probably, you know? Yeah. It, I'm sure they have spent a lot of time with uh, being the only person they can talk to about what's going on in their lives. Mm. So they probably had, that's probably part of where that closeness comes Mm. from. And if the divorce has happened relatively recently, given that Michael is fairly old, you know, he's what, 18, 19? He seems like he should have moved out several years ago. Which makes it likely that Sam would turn to him as a replacement father figure and, and somebody to lean on while all of this was going on. Yeah. 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 J- side note, Jason Patrick, I think, uh, not the, he did a fine job, but not the best casting for this because of the fact that he tends to act above his age, but not in that cute Fred Savage way. Yeah. Just um, a very, uh, yeah. Um, like super intense way. Yeah. As much as I like, the, yeah. <laughs> as much as I like this movie more than the other one I'm going to mention, I think that his performance as the ridiculously named. Officer Alex Shaw in Speed 2 Cruise Control um, was probably his best I've been trying to keep that a secret for decades. But yes, he played Officer Alex Shaw. That is the worst name. Honestly, though, I I really... It sounds superficial, but I suspect that the reason he got cast is because he looks a bit like Jim Morrison. I think that's what it comes down to. Almost certainly, yeah. It, it 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 didn't quite it didn't quite work. I'm not saying it was a bad performance because it's not, but there are times when um, I, I feel like he could have given a little bit more, and he comes off just a little bit wooden. Yeah, yeah. he's he's quite uh, aloof a lot of the time, and he like is. hiding behind sunglasses, like a lot of goth brothers. Yeah, but I I yeah. do think that feeds into a, a specific vibe that he's kind of giving off for for most of the film. To be fair, two in fact, one is that he's a little bit uh, sexually ambiguous, and if you're going to play that queer bisexual awakening angle somebody who is in between the very dominant butchness of the peroxided Mm. Kiefer Sutherland and that uh, dark haired delicate femininity that Star exudes you you kind of want somebody who's going to fall in between those Mm. and I do think he pulls that off really well especially with the the longer hair Mm. Um, the other thing is that there's um, this was something that that Alex brought up while we were watching the film but the the end fights um Michael's involvement is very fleeting. He gets taken out in seconds. Absolutely. They tear through him like he's tissue paper. It happens more than once. He makes these big kind of uh, big gestures of throwing himself into the battle, but is then immediately discarded. He's even got a really great line. I didn't invite you this time, Max. And then take it out in a half second. But that, I, I honestly think that that is deliberate because if you look at, there's uh, also the element of um, him saying to, I think he says it to the Frog Brothers, to protect Laddie and Star. Mm. Um, and I really get the impression that... And their immediate impulse is to try and stake them both. Well, yes, indeed. <laughs> um, <laughs> the, 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 
the point of this kind of limbo period between having drunk the blood and not having made their first kill yet is a really vulnerable time for vampires. Mm. That they have these unusual powers that they're still getting used to, but at the same time they haven't fully committed to this new lifestyle. And so they are much more susceptible to... Um, to damage, to being knocked out, it would appear. Um, And so in a way, it's almost like, well, Michael could have embraced his full vampiric power a lot earlier on, but he doesn't, and therefore he remains vulnerable throughout the whole film, which kind of, again, if you're looking at the subtext of, of him going through this sort of sexual question mark period of his life... Makes the sensitivity of that and the the uh, the vulnerability of that really come through. And yeah. this is something that I feel like a modern version would have like pages of dialogue devoted to the characters explaining throughout the comics. Like the Frog Brothers would say, "Well, you know, now that he's drunk the blood, he's you know he doesn't have his full strength, so the other vampires are still stronger than." But he's <laughs> we need the law c- categorized the only- by these fanboys. <laughs> Tell us, fanboys. Exactly. Put it in mathematical terms. The only issue with that is it becomes rapidly apparent that the Frog Brothers are making this shit up as they go along. They learned everything from comic books. Yeah, but they're not even very good comic fans in the sense that they have no... This is not in the books. Yep. None of that stuff is in the books. And all that stuff about when they sat there going, you know, some vampires implode, some explode. You only know that because you literally just came out of a cave where you were staking some vampires. That speech would have been better. (laughs) Like that, that, you know, some vampires go loud, some go quiet. Some explode, some implode. But all will try to take take you you with them. them. Um, How do you quietly try to take somebody with you? Yeah. But here's the thing. (laughs) We just saw you stake obviously your first vampire and you were screaming your heads off in shock at the explosive nature of it. We know you're amateurs. Yeah. Uh, Which is a fun a fun bit that Joel Schumacher seems to know and enjoy playing oh yeah. at as well. Absolutely. Like, like, I feel like a modern version would have them be like the exactly the sort of characters they think they are in their heads. Um, but there's, there's so much of like, um, like you were you were talking about earlier about how we understand that this is a vulnerable point for Michael and and how we sort of get the the gist of what's going on with their transformations without there being pages and pages of exposition. Schumacher is actually really smart about how he conveys visual information here, and there's even some some bits where like, like you have some some questions about how dilated time is. Like, do we do we only see like 24 to 48 hours of Michael's experience with this or or has he been coming home late and sleeping through the day more you know more times than we see because they mm. they reference his attitudes but they don't pin it down with a number but the way they talk about it makes it seem like well this has emerged as a pattern not just something that happened only last night so yeah. you know What's how been much with you lately exactly yeah. so how much of this you know are we are we dealing with like dream logic and and it's all happening super fast, or has this been like this more extended? And we don't really get that, but again, it it plays into our like putting us into you know his headspace of what's going on, what day is it, what happened, have I been asleep, have I been awake, what what's happening to me? It's mm. it's, it's a ninety eight minute film which feels like it should have 
it, it th- with the amount of stuff that's in it, it feels like it should be longer because there's a lot of information that's conveyed here in a very short window yeah. of time. Well, uh-huh. But the deleted scenes don't really contain much of any particular value apart from an extremely long sex scene. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they trimmed that down. But that's that's um, the other thing actually. The that I miss sex of... scenes in movies, by the way. Yeah, me I don't too. put them in anymore. Um, <laughs> that that sense of dilated time. Um, you can't even gauge it, and so Michael can't even gauge it by his injury healing. Mm. When Nanook bites him, that heals um, after he's gone and, and mm. spends the night with Star. He wakes up the next morning and the wound is completely healed. Yeah. So he can't even judge how fast that's getting better to, um, to work out how long this has all been going on. I think I've mentioned the uh, the I've missed sex scenes in films in the past. I can't remember where it was, but uh, our conclusion probably was then what it is to me now. People don't like sitting in the dark with a lot of other people in the cinema watching sex anymore. They might have done a while ago. In the 90s, yeah. we point, we were talking today about uh, there was a, a quick run of uh, upmarket, high-budget, erotic thrillers with a, you know, A-list stars in them. Mm. Uh, and, and, and that ran from like 1989 to 1995-ish. And that was it. Like, uh, you know, much after 2000, don't put sex scenes in our movies, please. We don't like that bit in The Shining where the lady comes out of the bath and is naked and young and nubile and has pubic hair on show. There was a guy behind us who, who's like, have been quiet the whole movie, just started chatting away because he could not stand being sat there looking at a naked woman. It, it was too much for him. The internet was invented. People could. It was much easier to get access to naked women yeah. or naked people in general. And I think that you know, as a result, we sort of got past the idea that pornography and sex could be sort of a public thing. Mm. Um, the fact that there are no, that there really aren't any that porn theaters unless they're like a gimmicky thing yeah. anymore. And, you know, people could be like, yeah, sure, I saw Basic Instinct in the theater, but, you know, it's not a porn movie. I didn't go to the porn theater. I went to the Cineplex. Interestingly, the early 21st century saw the rise of something called torture porn, where very unusual imaginative ways of inflicting terrible, terrible pain on people was invented. by Well, not invented, but reinvented and re-explored by people going off of Fulci and and, and various, uh, you know, early uh, 70s, like, gore fetishism and it was like okay so all kinds of ways of cutting up a person while they're still alive but it it's just a bit eerie if we're going to sit in the dark and watch two people bump uglies yeah it it, it, it is a strange behavior but then I suppose there's there's an element of it that the uh, the actual let's look at people having sex you could now get fairly easily on cable or satellite TV um, and and through the internet. But you would still, if you had that particular bent, shall we say, mm. um, you wouldn't necessarily be able to find that easily. So in a medium where you're more likely to see someone get their head trapped in a vice and then cut off while they're still alive than you are to see them uh, um, parking the pink Cadillac, (laughs) that is avoiding a very important part of human adult life. 
It certainly is. I, I would honestly say I think I probably learned to have sex by watching late 80s, early 90s movies. Oh, yeah. And we only mention this, obviously, because there's a very like sexy undertone to this movie. But um, it's just it's baffling that, that uh, the cinema is so sexless now. It's, it's sexy as hell. Like, you've got loads of sexy people, but they're never going to have sex. <laughs> I want Captain America naked, damn it. That's entirely <laughs> up to you. Hell yeah. <laughs> uh, it's, it, it says a lot about American culture. And because, you know, let's face it, most of, most of these movies are from Hollywood. So they're, you know, made by Americans. It, it says a lot about American incredibly fucked up attitudes about sex. Mm. And that, you know, it's, yeah, never mind, you know, yeah, you okay, you want to see just the mechanical part of sex, you know, yeah, I go to the internet, but that doesn't work if you want, you know, if you actually want to Intimacy. See. Yes, yes. Like mm. that, we... We almost never get that anymore. I'm like, I'm like, show me more. See, not even necessarily of having sex. Show me some, just really, makeout scenes, like couples that have really good chemistry and like, clearly, them doing yeah. this is is an extension of their character. Yeah. I think Love Actually is the earliest or, or the latest film I can think of that does something like that with uh, Martin Freeman and what's her name? Just yeah. Judy. Yeah. But they're simulating it. <laughs> I know. But, th- yeah, that, that is the closest I can think of. But that, that, the they're illustrating something not found in movies anymore. Deadpool. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, no, Deadpool has all kinds of boning out. Oh, yeah, Deadpool. Thank nice. you. Thank yeah. you. But yeah. specifically, it ha- that scene is about intimacy. It's about their relationship. Also, it's not that there's not a market for it. Fucking Game of Thrones is fucking full of sex. I mean, 80% of it is rape, but it's got sex in it. Yeah. <sighs> or it could just be that because of the rise of CG, you're now less likely to get the beast with two backs and more likely to get just another variation on a beast with one back. <laughs> and wings and a pointy tail. Yeah, everyone likes to see those beasties. Mm. Yeah. Okay, so that's that's enough complaining from all us, you know, Gen Xers and millennial <laughs> Gen Xers. Going, they don't put sex in movies anymore. God damn it. Anyway, um, people are strange when you're a stranger. Faces look ugly when you're alone. When you're down, when you're strange, faces come out of the rain. When you're strange, no one remembers your name. When you're strange.
so yeah, there's a, a whole section between uh, uh, Corey Haim's brother Sam, um, the brother Sammy, uh, and these two comic book nerds, the Frog Brothers, who fancy themselves as vampire hunters, but clearly haven't really done much of it at all. And there's uh, a whole bunch like they start like Sammy works out from a comic. Oh, uh, there's you know there's, there's going to be a head vampire, and this guy Max from the video store totally fits the bill, and he, he pretty much works out the movie through that, and uh, they invite him around. For, uh, he gets invited around for dinner by Lucy, and then invited in very specifically by um, Michael, and, and they uh, tried a bunch of various sort of vampire repelling techniques on him clumsily, and it doesn't work. And it's a really great kind of switcheroo because. I could imagine that if you're like a real hard nut vampire fan, you will catch the whole, I'm not going to come in unless you invite me, son. And uh, if you're not, then you'll be foxed. Our daughter, who's seen this film before, was like, so hang on, how come, I'm sure he was the head vampire, how come it didn't work on him? And we were like, well, he must not have been the head vampire, being fed raw garlic and exposed to a mirror and holy water. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, but yeah, it's it's a nice kind of fake out because it leaves you then wondering who is the head vampire, and I think a lot of people suspected Grandpa. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I can see that. I can see why they were setting something like that up. I mean, if you weren't outside in the daytime all the time, I mean, who yeah. knows? Maybe the head vampire can do that. It's you know, a not lot many of people stuff- know this, but Dracula can move about by day, though it is not his natural time, and his powers are weak. So a low-powered yes. vampire. Exactly. Yeah, but then, you know, they, uh, they do a lot of kind of creating their own lore around standard vampire lore and tricks. I, I honestly have never heard the idea that if you invite a vampire in, they can walk in regardless. But if you invite them in, then you lose all of your powers. I think the closest I've heard is something along the line in the Harry Dresden books. Yeah, but that's about it. So, um, I, I. And, can you tell? Can anybody think of a time when that has shown up specifically? What the invite? No, that that yeah. feels like a, a a twist specifically for this movie. Of the yeah, y- if you invite them in, then none of your none of the the na- natural vampire repellents will work. Mm. Yeah, but I, I bought it because they they do they you know they're very sincere about it. Mm. They're again Edward Herman just when he delivers that line is so wonderful and so sincere and so smarmy about it hmm. that I'm like, oh, yeah, sure, that, that's, that's the thing. That is definitely a thing. And interestingly enough, I, I only saw this film for the first time, what, two, three years ago? Something like that, yeah. Whoa. And I somehow, you know, being around pop culture and whatnot, somehow I the twist was never spoiled for me. Oh, cool. And so it was it was a real shock to me seeing it the first time like oh he is the head vampire cuz you know me being a huge buffy fan yeah. I'm like oh the 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 you know oh he got invited in okay okay and the like the garlic doesn't work and whatnot so I you know the the misdirect and the twist totally worked on me <laughs> It's a twist direct if you will uh, as I recall, I think uh, both Fright Nights did deal with the whole you've got to invite a vampire onto your property, specifically the Colin Farrell uh, um, version of, uh, what was his name? Jerry. Jerry, Jerry. Jerry. yeah. He's oh, like yeah. hanging around in the doorway, like, you know, holding out his hand and, and like doing that sort yeah. of uh, uh, creep that's invading your space without actually being able to step through. 
Yeah, or the where he pulls up the uh, the gas pipe yeah. because he can't. He's not being invited in, so he's like, "All right, fine, we'll just, just blow up your blow house up with your you house. in it." Yeah, <laughs> and they also play with it by my Max saying, "You know, I'm I, I'm not here to replace your father. I just want to be your friend." And it's like, oh, actually, maybe there is something more going on here. And and Sammy's starting to feel hostile about any man that his mother dates. And it reminds you that it's actually kind of a domestic drama underneath it all. Mm. And it feels like uh-huh. just a, a bit, a little bit more of that might have just strengthened the film in, in the direction. Like, there's some dramatic stuff that didn't happen in this film that actually might have made it... Like, th- this is a film passed off as kind of uh, uh, popcorn, but I've got a couple of friends who are like, Lost Boys. But, um, like, I, this is something that I have a great enjoyment watching. It's kind of perfect for us to uh, cover. Although it's... Like I say, it's lacking just a little bit of that, like the pain and the depth and the uh, and the sense of connection. Notably, I was th- I hadn't realised this until I was looking through my notes just now while we were doing this. Michael and David don't really get a scene together, so David no. is permanently mysterious. We never really get any of the internal life for David. You get Michael thinking about him a whole lot and That's scenes not where the same. his face is superimposed <laughs> over him. That's um, not the same. That's obsession. <laughs> we we find out about as much as Jim Mor- about Jim Morrison from this film yeah, as David. Like, <laughs> yeah. we, we we have to assume that uh, David is kind of cruel, mm. and there's certain. Element like the the bit where they the Frog Brothers and company creep into this vampire lair to stake all of them uh, in the cave, and it's during the daytime, and they manage to stake uh, Alex Winter, he of Bill and Ted, who's the little vampire, and yep. uh, uh, not Rudolph uh, from the uh, <laughs> Angela Summer Boddenberg um, Rudiger Rudiger, sorry, uh, but the, the the smallest of the vampires, and then. That all the other vampires wake up during the screaming and chase them out while, while um, Alex Winter spouts copious amounts of brown goop everywhere. But David, in his screaming and trying to grab at them, because Kiefer Sutherland's a really fantastic, intense actor, uh, you know, while he's screaming and he's got these intense, fierce eyes, which hadn't really been used, that kind of contact lens before, as well as uh, being angry, he also sheds a tear and it could just be a tear of pain because he's just been burned by sunlight, or it could be a tear of, you know, lamenting for Ted, uh, <laughs> lamenting for <laughs> lamenting for Bill. Um, but it could just be a sense of, you know, fear and paranoia, and just knowing that he's this monster that, that these guys will come and try and kill. It, it kind of it's the other side of. Um, what we do in the shadows, which yeah. of course references this movie with, uh, would you yeah. like some biscotti? Yeah. <laughs> There's a, a moment after David is killed though, which I thought was a really nice touch. They linger on him changing from his demon face mm. to his human face and specifically frame it to make him look angelic angelic and yeah. like he's uh-huh. getting younger and and the innocence comes back into him in death it feels like J- joss whedon and francis ford coppola with uh, his bram stoker's dracula definitely saw this film and made notes oh hell yeah and um uh-huh. neil jordan as well yeah absolutely yeah. so he does it the other way you're yeah. all beat up and then you become a vampire and suddenly you're all clean again for some yeah. strange reason <laughs> Yeah, injuries are one thing, but but where'd all the dirt go? Yeah. 
And when Michael uh, is confronted with the, like, yeah, they're, they're quite coy about the whole these guys are vampires. Uh, a good two thirds of the way through the movie, you, they've never done the vampire face, and, and then uh, uh, David and and the, his cronies take take Michael to a tree to overlook a bunch of teenagers listening to Walk This Way uh, as somewhere Run DMC and Aerosmith, and then just swoop in there and tear the fuck out of them. It's a really intense mm-hmm. scene for, uh, yeah. for, you know, even for an R-rated movie. It's, it's like, there's one point where, rather than just going straight for the throat, they're like ripping necks, and David, like, bites a skinhead on his skinhead. Like, he bites him in the head! You're supposed yeah. to bite him in the head! They do? Yeah, it at- looks like someone gets their scalp ripped off at some point. Yeah. It's yeah, a lot. Absolutely. And they do go out of their way to set these guys up as boardwalk bullies as well. So it, there is sort of the... Um, it's not exactly a misdirect, but the setup is there's this gang over here and mm. there's this, this gang over here and you've basically got mods and rockers going at each other and who's going to turn out to be vampires? Oh, it was the rockers. What a surprise. Um, yeah. <laughs> but um, but the, the, um, the turn, I suppose, then when David's gang turns out to be vampires, there's still kind of a bit of your brain going, but they're not so bad because those guys were gits. Yeah. Yeah. And a special um, mention has to go for, to two pretty classic scenes, actually. The, uh, the, the one with the Chinese food, where uh, um, David hands Michael uh, some rice and says, do you want some rice, David? And uh, Kiefer Sutherland, again, has this really mocking look on his face the whole time. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of, like... Uh, there's a bit where Michael on the beach punches him... And then goes, no, 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 just you. As in, like, I just want to have a fight with you. Obviously, I can't beat all of you, but, like, just single out the leader and and have a fight with him there. And uh, David, rather than getting angry about being punched or getting, uh, you know, um, know, territorial about being the leader and not being shown up, just goes, how far are you willing to go, Michael? And he's, like, super charismatic, sort of drawing him in rather than combative. But, um, like I said, like, so much of the, their relationship is, is unspoken and they never really reveal too much to each other, mm-hmm. apart from that they kind of, like, that they're circling each other the whole time and growling throughout the, the whole movie. The degree to which Kiefer Sutherland carries this character forwards as well. Like, I watch Flatliners after having seen The Lost Boys, mm. and I was like, well, this is all going to go horribly wrong. <laughs> Kiefer Sutherland's involved. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Took me a while to trust him in Young Guns as well. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Doc, yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah, so it's it's the whole, you know, he hands him rice and they turn out to be maggots. Was that why you're terrified of maggots? Uh, no, I am terrified of all. Well, I think it's because of Stephen gone King now. No, um, James Bond. Seriously, There's License to Kill. A guy gets, gets oh, yeah. shut into a drawer full of maggots. Yeah. I was. What you have to remember is, I was very young when I saw that, and I used to go fishing with my dad, and Ew. he used to have, um, like, in his bait box, he had um, little containers yeah. of maggots. Mike stared in disbelief as his hands fell off. From them rose millions of tiny maggots. Maggots? Maggots. 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 All over the floor of the post office in Leytonstone. But they had a, a maggot wrangler on set who was like, well, here's how you get the maggots all... Like, because maggots apparently just sit there most of the time. So to get them all wriggly, you got to squeeze lemon juice onto them. And then he did the same with uh, worms. And then Michael freaks out and is like, 
They're just noodles, Michael. And it's again like that that sort of bit, especially when you're a yeah. kid, just that sort of fucking with Michael's head and like you could be eating worms. It's juvenile, mm. but it's powerful. Yeah, and also there's the there's the power of three in the sense that that's the setup for giving him the bottle of wine that's actually blood and having him be so pissed off at the previous attempts at messing mm. with his head that he just downs it without really thinking about it. Yeah. yeah. Um yeah. and also We all peed in that. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and also this kind of feeling of, well, is this a, is this another power that David has? Does he, you know, is it some kind of hypnotic suggestion that he's um, yeah. imprinting? Yeah, which is a vampire thing. They can do that, as in Many of what we're doing in the shadows. Been seen to do. Yeah. yeah. So effectively, Michael is being manipulated to joining this group. Yes. Uh, once they decide he's more than just food. Mm. But the the question for me is, and it's never quite clear. It's it's fairly ambiguous, and I think that's a good thing. Is why is he suddenly more than food? Because if the initial idea was that Star was supposed to take him as her first kill, mm-hmm. who then made the decision that actually, no, that's not going to happen? Because another take I've seen on it is that Star is used as bait to draw him in so that David can have him. Makes sense. Well, I mean, like it looks like David has kind of a thing for him and then they never really explore it. Mm. It's all left to subtext. Uh, there's a really great moment after the, um, I think it's after the blood drinking when uh, they take it. This is after they've raced along the beach on the uh, motorbike so that he can try and keep up. They go to a railway bridge in the dark, covered in mist, and then drop down beneath it and hang on to the bottom as a train goes uh, over and then start letting go one by one and falling into mist. And it's a really haunting scene because <clears throat> you never get to see what's at the bottom. They just drop down through it. And uh, hear it, anything either. Yeah. It seems like they've all they've dropped to their death, but you it's the, you know, the fact that they're all cackling about it suggests that they're either off their rockers or they know something that Michael doesn't. And then David's like, you got to do it, Michael, and then drops down himself. And then you hear them cackling beneath the mist, beckoning to him. And eventually he doesn't drop of his own accord. He just can't hold on any longer. And he just sort of screams and falls into that. Visually speaking, that's a really great taut scene. And uh, it's, like I say, the, 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 the sort of dropping into this. There's a lot of sort of gothic stuff that's snuck in here in amongst all the punk arcana. I, my theory about um, when when that, you know, he changed from food to food to friend, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> food or friends. Yeah. Yeah. Michael is friend, not, not food. food. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my theory is that it was that race and the fact that a part of the way David was acting about with Star mm. was... I, I wonder, yeah, I definitely think there was an aspect of Star was in, you know, was supposed to be bait, but I think it was also David, he's like, all right, like, okay, he's goading me, all right, let's see where this goes, and I think he's like, okay, this dude's not a coward, this dude, you know, he's he's not unlike me, and I, I want to fuck him, and, you know, whatever, but so I think I think it was definitely at that point when they're like, you know, he pushed it as close to the cliff edge as he really could, mm. the motorcycle. And so David's like, all right, all right, he can be one of us. Yeah. That's, I, that's my thing. And there is something like very kind of romantic and a little bit tragic about Michael. He's got that kind of uh, Jim Morrison thing, but also a little bit of James Dean in there with the the, uh, the, the young motorist yeah. thing. Yeah. Too. Um, and, uh, 
I would say, uh, just talking about Michael, um, I think while, yes, absolutely, some of the parts of the movie he can be very wooden, Mm. the thing that works having him in that role is, like, he sells the, like, he sells the ambiguity, but he also sells the pain. Mm. And the fact that when he realized that it seems to me the point that he rejects being a vampire is the point that he realizes that he almost hurt his brother. Yeah. And Jason Patrick sells that astonishingly well. Yes. He has his moments, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, another thing I loved about this as seeing it as a kid was the whole kids take on vampires and win side of it. I mean, they, they, like we just saw the monster squad cause we hate movies covered it. And that movie got some problems. Uh, yep. if, <laughs> yeah. Uh, if nothing else, the, the, the fact that it was like, Oh, as we hate movies, put it to, yeah, Steven, can we have some of the Goonies? How much? All of it. Plus we'll add some <laughs> monsters. Um, and Sharon, Sharon, we noticed the other week that uh, when they're doing the 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 vortex at the beginning and end, that is straight out of Evil Dead Two, which just happened to come out just enough months beforehand for that to be added uh, as a spice. But uh, it could just be that it was uh, in there it too. It could but, just be coincidence. But it looks but exactly it the same. Shockingly alike to the, the point of Dead picking 2. up a car and sucking it down mm. the vortex. Where was that? Anyway, so. Um, yeah, I, I loved sort of Monster Hunter stuff when I was a kid, and the fact that the Frog Brothers like get a, uh, and uh, Sammy get uh, a bunch of holy water from the church, and they chop up a bunch of garlic, and uh, uh, they get a bathtub of it, and, and end up pushing one of these vampires into it with this incredibly satisfying explosive result. Uh, yeah, just there's a double whammy of, of that vampire who gets pushed into it by a dog. By the way, they've got this gorgeous yeah. uh, husky called Nanook of the North, um, who uh, effectively body checks the uh, blonde yes. vampire into the bath. Yeah, do you, like the, the the sinks explode. Two sinks next to each other, just gouting brownish red goop everywhere. Followed by and the, the yeah, and the toilet. Followed immediately by the you missed sucker. Uh, and uh, uh, stereo explosion. It's it's got this incredibly satisfying. Like, it's not easy to kill a vampire, but when they go, it's extremely entertaining. Uh, kind of. They way. all yeah. go through uh, elemental means as well. You've got one goes by water, one goes by fire, um, one it gets stabbed with wood, and one gets uh-huh. taken out by electricity. I'm not necessarily saying that they're classic elements, but they are all uh, elemental kills. Okay. Yeah. Uh, are we counting the elk horns here as? Uh, uh, um, a creature of earth. a creature of nature. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'd say so. Yeah, elkhorns, which are famously not wood, but okay, whatever. I'll look at it. Close enough. Um, yeah. So, so yeah. The movie plays fast and loose with with vampire expectations it anyway. So. Does. Yeah. One yeah. thing I like about the getting the uh, holy water scene mm-hmm. is that the music just cuts out right there, mm-hmm. as if to acknowledge. Yes, we are taking a moment to just make this movie screech to a halt in the middle of what should be a preparation montage. Just to kind of let you know that, yeah, this is still a little ridiculous what they're doing here. Absolutely, yeah. It's, it's self-conscious and, enough to, uh, to, to go, yeah, goofy kid stuff. 
Yeah, if they, the only thing that I wish that they had done was that immediately after they got the holy water and Alan gives the you know fist pump and they walk out, I wish the music had started up again immediately. <laughs> <laughs> yep, that would have been funnier, punctuating it, yeah. And it, it adds to the fact that very clearly the Frog Brothers seem to be in a different movie. <laughs> Than everyone else. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, yeah, they, because they believe themselves to be these badass vampire hunters, yeah. and they're, they're like Jennifer Garner and Juno. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so yeah, the, the whole like last final act is just a showdown in uh, the uh, this hunting lodge, covered in antlers and weird stuff. It's a little bit um, mystery shack. There, we'll be talking about Gravity Falls very very soon, folks. Um, yeah. Grappling hook. Grappling. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, seriously, that is that is a uh, um, like this is your notification. Make sure you go see Gravity Falls on Disney Plus. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's 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 a sort of a showdown where a bunch of kids just about defend themselves uh, in a fight to the death with a bunch of vampires. It's it's a weirdly happy ending. Like nobody actually gets killed that we want to survive, apart from possibly. David's death is a little bit more tragic mm. because um, he and Michael have a fight, and there's that sort of. There was more to David going on. Then again, they also murdered yeah. children, so... Yeah. yeah. And there's also the uh, the bit where the Frog Brothers decide to kill both Star and Laddie, and Laddie's hiding under the bed, and then explodes out of it! And he's just been this little quiet kid the whole time. And again, he's got these vampire wind powers. There's, like, streamers and confetti flying everywhere. It's like... And it's, like, it's, he's not even do- like he's come to like vampire puberty or something. Like, he's suddenly and he comes with his own special effects. Yeah, he's now going into <laughs> vampire ponfar, <laughs> and like nothing really comes of that. He then goes and hides behind Star. It's just a real great, great moment. And then the line, "Holy shit, it's the attack of any monster," which is great. Um, and then, uh, like, like I said. Um, there's a, the, a, a brief superhero showdown between David and Michael where they're flying uh, all about the place and there's enough antlers for uh, David to get staked fairly uh, quickly. And then Max shows up and turns out to be the head vampire and tries to uh, uh, bring Lucy in. And then there's an incredibly, like, this couldn't possibly have been planned, but it kind of doesn't matter because the whole thing's become a giant camp opera that's not a million miles away from Phantom of the Paradise at this point, speaking of 70s psychedelia, uh, where Grandpa comes bursting through the side of his own house after having gone on a date with a widow who likes stuffed beavers. Um, <laughs> and the, the giant loose fence posts are on the uh, front of his truck impale Max and send him screaming into the fire whereupon he explodes so I mean it's it, it's an extremely camp fun ending and I think um, it's played fast enough that you don't really get to stop and think about all of these you know, people who are like, it's just like it's good versus evil at this point yeah uh, one thing that I absolutely adore is how uh, when Max is revealing himself, mm. the shot is framed where there's that roaring lion, the stuffed roaring lion right behind him mm-hmm. to visually distinguish that this man is in fact a predator mm-hmm. and we're finally seeing it. And for the longest time, I th- since it didn't have a mane, I thought it was a lioness, but um, I have since learned that Zavo lions don't have manes. Oh, nice. Those were the lions, the very famous ones that uh, the Ghost in the Darkness was based on. Oh, cool. 
Yeah, the, the man-eaters of Zavo, that was them, and they don't actually have manes, even the males. So I think that was a Zavo lion. Or it also looked to me like possibly someone had shaved that lion. It Grandpa like could it... have shaved the lion, yes. Is that you? <laughs> First, let him be <laughs> shaved! I also just uh, really like the, uh, the idea of water pistols with holy water. Like I said, this is very much bringing them back to being kids. I think that might be a, maybe a holdover from the original script, like the idea that they're defending themselves in that way. I think Monster Squad actually came out about that same time. And it's also the the sort of just like logic that there's just enough because they've got a lot of the talking about it's not quite meta to the point where like, you know, something uh, like the remake of, of Fright Night is meta and very genre aware, but there's still just enough genre aware that they've mm got like okay so we know what should work how can we kind of hodgepodge our resources together to kind of make that work yeah. you know you can't exactly have like just glass files that you sprinkle on a vampire so of course yeah you're going to take as much holy water as you can get mm. fill a bathtub full so you can have a lot more water but it's still got holy water diffused through it mm. and weaponize that somehow it's it's the sort of thing that you would come up with if you were you know between 11 and 14 just like in your clubhouse going, okay, so <laughs> what if vampires happen? What would you do? Yeah? Yeah. Holy water in the bathtub. Makes perfect sense if you're a kid. Yeah. I, li- I like the moment, uh, just for a moment, when, um, what's his name, the vampire that they kill with that water says, garlic doesn't work. <laughs> and it's like, oh, okay, well, good thing it's also holy water. <laughs> <laughs> so we got the bases covered. It's fine. Yeah, and so, then, yeah. We, we, and we, then, we like you the- said, they... They just, like, explode. I, I love how, I, again, how extra the vampire deaths are in this and in, in Fright Night. They, mm. they just don't, like, turn to dust or die or, like, what they, like, the, the goo that covers everyone in the, in the, the vampire's lair, it's not just gooey, it's a little bit sparkly. You can see the Frog Brothers, like, glitter as they're getting into the car. <laughs> it's disgusting. <laughs> Mm-hmm. It's awesome. Yeah. It's it's exactly the, you know, I, I describe this as being kind of like the ideal first R-rated vampire movie or, or one of them because mm. it is so gruey and nasty, but it's in a very like, it, it, it's not like as intense as something like The Thing, but it still feels like, oh, I just saw a whole bunch of blood and gore and awesome stuff <laughs> that you can that you can kind of like compartmentalize it without, you know, emotionally scarring a younger viewer. Well, it doesn't have the uh, the body horror of the thing, and ultimately the vampires that do go kablooey, they are very definitely vampires when it happens. They've all got vamped out faces, so you've kind of got that disconnection from uh, their humanity. In fact, that kind of ties in with... Um, I know we've already gone past uh, David's death scene, but that's one of my favourite parts of the film is when uh, David says to Michael, my blood is in your veins, and Michael's response is, so is mine. It's it, There's a reclamation of himself at that point. Yeah. And a, and a uh, having gone through this um, sort of into the woods phase of not really knowing who I am or where I'm going, I now know... I'm me and I haven't changed even though things feel really weird and my eyes hurt when I go out in the sun and they've given you enough time in the film for that to really work as a as a turnaround because 
the for all that it's only like a, a 98 minute movie the the bit where michael is basically revealed to sam and decides i'm going to try and fight this because i almost drank my brother's blood while he was taking a bath is only like what 40 45 minutes into the film mm-hmm. they don't they don't spend a whole lot of time of the what's going on who's going to know what how much is you know how much are we being suspicious versus you know they don't make the whole movie a rear window gag where is this is this is it maybe no it's it's very quickly boom he's a vampire okay we've had just enough of him questioning what's going on now he knows what's up and he has like half the movie to try and rein himself back from that so it doesn't feel like a last minute third act sort of cop out it's yeah. it's something that they build to appropriately yeah uh-huh and there's, uh, there was talk of a, a lost... There, there was a couple of uh, straight-to-video sequels, which no one has seen, and by, by all accounts are terrible, yeah. uh, both of them starring uh, uh, Corey Feldman, uh, and, and my, mainly focusing on the Frog Brothers. Uh, and uh, this definitely needs some kind of uh, uh, remake. There was a lot of um, talk on the uh, DVD and Blu-ray of uh, Lost Girls, so that kind of gender Yeah. And uh, I pointed out that basically if, if the craft is the, the, the girl's version of this in mm-hmm. terms of teenage girl falls in with a bunch of other dangerous teenage girls. And Debbie, is that one of the films that you like? Um, I Not not especially. Okay, um, sorry, I've only I don't know seen it once. Yeah, okay, sorry. Someone that I know that really likes the craft, it, it, it must be someone else. Oh, was it you, Sharon? I, I was a fan of the craft when I saw it. Okay. I've not gone after it to see it. Much yeah. since, oh, but it's, so I saw, it doesn't I saw surprise it, me at yeah. all. I saw it with Lyra uh, f- a few months ago, but uh, yeah, yeah. But not it, with you, you know, unfortunately. Goth chicks doing witchy stuff. That's how mm. is that not me? But the craft, yeah. in, <laughs> the craft also needs a uh, a remake yes. and a reboot again. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it's interesting how like you know, when you're going to do a girl version of Teen Wolf, it's Teen Witch. You're going to do a girl version of this, it's the craft. Mm. Because if you're going to give girls monster powers, mm. they're going to be witch powers. Yeah. But I mean, Schumacher himself said that you know the vampire of all mythical creatures is probably one of the absolute sexiest. If, in terms of monsters, he said nobody wants to kiss Godzilla. I might want to kiss the new Godzilla. He's pretty awesome. Yeah, but I know, uh, at, least one, I know at least one person who would like to kiss Godzilla. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, but back in um, what Joel was talking about the uh, the, the Toho Godzilla, I'm assuming. Um, but uh, but but yeah, the vampires are sexy and there is definitely a way of getting um, this done with a, a largely female cast to to make it uh, different or at least like you know, that you could get it done focusing on females then bring guys in as well and it, whatever happens it would have to be fully in the whole LGBTQ being much more accepted now than it was before side of things yeah and I think also, if you're going to do it with women, you've got to drop any um, Peter Pan pieces. Yeah, absolutely. That it, makes sense. Yeah. I think the core story here, yeah, hell yeah. But yeah, just cut out the, you know, the Captain Hook and Wendy and mm. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh-huh. Apart from anything else, I feel like the uh, if you're going to use vampirism as a 
metaphor for burgeoning female sexuality it's it's going to be about women coming into their own and, and becoming more adult yeah. rather than the sort of trying to not stay in one place but, but keep themselves young forever if yeah. you if you go down that line then you end up with either an elizabeth bathory story where it's one demonic um, bitch yeah. who's taking out feeding off else. other girls to stay beautiful yeah. exactly or at the very uh, the very shallowest you've got a, a pack of um, teenage girls who tear into each other all the time and frankly that's boring yeah. no one wants to watch that yeah I agree yeah it sounds, it sounds like teenage death becomes her and no mm. no um, I'd be fascinated to see how something like that played with the the turnaround that for all that the movie is like, ooh, you got to watch out for those gangs. You know, you never know what's going to happen when those those like boys join those gangs and start doing gang things. Where it's like, no, it's actually the the well to do white man that's actually the the mm-hmm. biggest predator on the block. Is it's the the guy who's you know socially acceptable and affluent in his community, and he's actually the worst. That again, that's that's something I feel that could get. Uh, a little bit more play now. <laughs> yeah. 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 And there, there are people who are doing basically far worse things without all the vampirism that fit that description. It would play well if their head vampire was female and actually quite benevolent and then got killed off by a white male head vampire who was trying to manipulate them. Ooh. That's yeah. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I uh, watched that movie. Hell yeah. <laughs> food for thought, folks. Uh, but yeah, no. Uh, um, if for some reason you hadn't uh, uh, yet seen uh, the Lost Boys, uh, at, but have listened to this the whole way through, go enjoy because that is that is a fun evening on a Saturday. It's a hell of a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. one of my favorite movies of all time. It, it really is. I have watched it countless times, and I will never get bored of it. And eminently it's quotable. It's so as well. rewatchable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You afraid to face me, David? Huh? I tried to make you immortal. You tried to make me a killer! <laughs> you are a killer. Stop fighting me, Michael. I don't want to kill you. Join us. Never. It's too late. My blood is in your veins. So is mine.
Oh, one thing, just and it's a tiny little thing. Mm-hmm. Um, shout out to the sound design um, in oh, yeah. in the cave specifically, because I love the way that when they they go into that cave and it's got the the way wind sounds when it passes through a very tall structure. Yeah, uh-huh. and it's yeah. a it's a that that whine. I don't even know how to quite describe it, but you know it if you hear it. Mm. And I'm like in oh. cathedrals, so it makes everything sound yeah. really gothicy. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and it makes you feel like this. I am in this space that is real. Like it, it grounded me in the scene. You know, in a way, no, almost nothing else could do. And it also, it really emphasizes how much distance there is between the lair and the human world above. It's not as if they are living literally just underneath people's feet. They are quite some distance down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Thank you so, so much for coming on. This has been fan-bloody... Fang-bloody test. Yeah. <laughs> Christ! Oh. You can't make dad jokes while doing Lost Boys. You seem old at that point. I'm not old, am I? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, okay, so thank you so, so much for uh, coming on the show, all of you guys. Uh, Brendan, where can people find your stuff and specifically something you're proud of recently? Um, so most recently, uh, the Two Cents crew over at Synapse, that C-I-N-A-P-S-E dot C-O, uh, revisited uh, Charlie's Angels and talked about how it's this really weird um, cartoon of a movie that's super saturated and poppy and just kind of this strange mishmash. Uh, so we uh, we have that up on uh, synapse.co if you want to check that out. You can also find me on Twitter at BLC Agnew and occasionally writing longer stuff on normannerd.blogspot.com. And Debbie and Cameron. You can find us on sequentially-yours.com where we talk about comic books and comic book movies and all of that. A reasonably recent video that I did that I'm still very proud of is How Does Wiktiv Relate to Fandom and Loving Art? Also, lately, I have been writing for uh, Something Ghoulish on YouTube, and you can find some of my work there. Um, I recommend The Legacy of Expressionism and Horror Films. Fantastic. And Debbie? Uh, you can find me, as as Karu said, on sequentially-yours.com and also on Twitter. Uh, the probably thing I'm most proud of recently was... Um, I did a, basically a tweet thread talking about one talking about The Shining and then one talking about Doctor Sleep, nice. and I'm I'm very I'm very proud of those. I I, I think they they come off quite well generally. Okay, thank you very much, all of you. Uh, we will be back next week with um, let's see, I think with Genlock. Yeah. Ooh. Okay, uh, that is a uh, animated uh, series by Rooster Teeth. Uh, I, th- I believe there are places you can check it out, at least the first season, for either free or relatively low cost. Uh, James Glass on our Discord saw it on the strength of the fact that we were going to cover it and uh, pointed out that it's basically a far better spiritual successor to Pacific Rim than the actual cinematic sequel, Pacific Rim Uprising. And I heartily agree. Excellent point, James. Genlock season one and we're going to play you out with the song I've been holding back this whole time Cry Little Sister by Gerard McMahon made for the soundtrack of The Lost Boys I've been Alex Shaw 
I've been Sharon Shaw. And School's Out. My car.
nailed one of them downstairs with a bow and arrow. All right, Sambo. We trash the one that looks like Twisted Sister. Totally annihilated his night stalking ass. Well, and look out to it all. Right in the knock. Death to all vampires. Maximum body count. They're awesome monster bastards. The meanest. The baddest. Holy shit! It's the attack of any monster! Get him! Wait! 